Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. was the run which gave in his century an equal graces record, one of the greatest moments in the life of Jack Hoff. It was at this point in the game that Woodfall was unfortunately struck on the heart by a ball from Larwood which got up. No, is it? Is it the Ashes? Yes, England have won the Ashes. That's it this time. He's made sure he's taken five wickets. He grabs a stump. He's got it. England have won the World Cup by the barest of margins. Stokes flashes it away through the covers for four, and England have won the match. On March the 26th, 2021, the Cricketer magazine, which has covered every one of those epic moments and so many more, reaches its century. A hundred not out is a considerable achievement for any batsman, but for a sporting publication it's quite exceptional. Founded in 1921, the magazine has survived world wars, global economic crises, pandemics, strikes and numerous financial challenges and is as strong and distinct as ever as it commemorates this landmark with a special celebratory issue. I'm Simon Hughes, and it's my privilege to be the editor of The Cricketer at such a momentous time. In this special podcast, we'll look back at the fascinating events that the magazine has reported and commented on, the great matches and phenomenal players it has featured, and the intriguing characters responsible for publishing a magazine that dwarfs most others in sport for its authority and longevity. (music) 
The cricketer was born in April 1921, the brainchild of Middlesex and former England captain Sir Pelham Warner, known universally as Plum, and his great friend Geoffrey Foster, who played for Kent and Worcestershire. Plum, who doubled as the cricket correspondent of the Morning Post, was intrigued by Foster's suggestion to start a paper devoted to cricket, an idea that was aired, appropriately enough, while the men were sitting on the pavilion concourse at Lord's. Warner, after whom the famous stand at Lord's was of course named, was a fascinating character. The youngest of 21 siblings to Charles Warner, Trinidad's Attorney General, Plum was born in Port of Spain and despite being sent to school in England when he was 13, had a lifelong passion for West Indies cricket. He was instrumental in organising the first tours to the Caribbean and, condemning some islands for their whites-only selection policies, ensured the first integration of blacks into both West Indies and England teams of the early 20th century. One of his brothers, Oucher, was actually captain of the West Indies side that toured England in 1900, surely the only instance of two captains of opposing international cricket teams hailing from the same family. So what was Plum like? His granddaughter, Marina Warner, a renowned author herself, has vivid recollections of him, even though she was only six when they first met. Well, he was famous for his courtesy, famous for his very amiable, gentle manners. Um, he was extraordinarily unlike athletes today. And even as a child, I was kind of surprised at how slight he was. Um, you know, he was not at all heavily built. And in fact, he's, he suffered from uh, you know, rather bad health all his life. He'd had TB, I think, as a child, and you know, he was, and he was actually ill for one of the Ashes tours. So he, he, you know, he, he and he, he sort of seemed like that. He wasn't exactly frail because he was very erect, and you know, mobile. He would have been quite old when I knew him. So, one of the stories we liked uh, very much uh, him to tell us. There were two stories we liked him to tell us. One was to recite the names of his brothers and sisters in the right order, because he had 20. <laughs> you know, his father had been Attorney General in Trinidad, so they lived in a very beautiful house, and he, that's where he learned to play cricket. He, um, and, but there were two, two mothers. Two, uh, the first mother had died of the first lot of children, and then there was another lot of children, but there were t 21 in all, and he was the youngest. He was a man of great equanimity and restraint and the kind of he doesn't he doesn't strike me as somebody who suffered anguish about things but he was the person responsible for integrating the west indies the team the england team because he said we have to have the best cricketers i don't think it was because of politics or ideas about justice or anything but he was always very much very loyal to his trinidadian roots one of his autobiographies long innings begins with this marvellous description of him learning to learning to bat. And it's, he said, I learned from the bowling of a black boy called Killibri in my father's house in, in the port of Spain in Trinidad. He was very famous in our family, the way one has family jokes, that he, he never ate anything, he was extremely thin. And so and, and our favourite story about him not eating was that he, when asked if he would like a second helping, he said, one P, please. 
Plum was a sort of cricketing evangelist and by his mid-thirties had written numerous cricket books, including How We Regained the Ashes after the successful 1903 tour and Cricket in Many Climes. He began his editorial in the first issue of The Cricketer with the words, The popularity of and interest in cricket, not only here but in every part of the world where Englishmen are gathered together, was never greater than at the present time and he set his stall to cover the game in great depth and breadth on a weekly basis. He called the cricketer a Bible to be collected in instalments. Priced at sixpence, two and a half p in today's money, the cricketer was based at 115 Fleet Street and covered a plethora of subjects from a variety of correspondents, as eminent cricket historian Stephen Chalk and first the cricketer's managing editor and historian of the magazine Hugh Turberville divulge. I've read the first one and uh, it covers cricket at all levels. Obviously, there isn't much women's cricket in there, I'm afraid. But uh, it's got some schools and some club and uh, international. Uh, and there's some kind of weird articles in those first few years. I was just rereading the history I did in the 1920s and there was a, an article about growing oranges in South Africa. Um, <laughs> early on, there was a preview of the 1924 Olympic Games in Paris by Arthur Langford. Uh, his, there was a history of cricket that was batting um, tutorials, so it was a sort of an eclectic mix. He was an establishment man, and The Cricketer was very much an establishment magazine. There was an enormous emphasis on public schools, and, uh, and, and, and it was a magazine of record. Um, very early on, they had articles about how to coach in the public schools, and Harry Altham, who was a highly influential schoolmaster at Winchester, who later became chairman of selectors and president of MCC, he wrote a series on the history of cricket, which was the basis of the first book he brought out with that name. So I think at that time, I don't think Warner was the sort of man who would have had any misgivings that he had fingers in too many pies. I think he would have seen himself as somebody championing the game of cricket with a, an idealistic fervour and uh, the cricket magazine, the cricketer would have been um, part of a whole range of things he would have been doing. Warner was the figurehead of the weekly magazine throughout the 1920s and 30s, though his assertion that cricket had a wonderful ability to forge international relations and soothe disputes was compromised by his direct involvement in the famous Bodyline series of 1932-3. After Donald Bradman had totally obliterated England's attack in the 1930 Ashes series with his record-breaking tally of 974 runs... Bradman's 199 now. That is 200. Well done. Warner was recruited by MCC to assemble a fresh team to win back the urn. He announced that England needed to find a new type of bowler, new ideas for Australia, and persuaded Douglas Jardine, whose only experience of captaincy had been at school, to lead the side. Little did Warner realise what he'd unleashed. Jardine hated the Aussies after an uncomfortable previous tour there and he studied footage of the 1930s series, concluding that Bradman was vulnerable to short pitch bowling on leg stump. He's yellow, he announced. He hatched the notorious leg theory plan and summoned England's two quickest bowlers, the burly-shouldered Harold Larwood and his Nottinghamshire left-arm opening partner Bill Vose, to implement it. There is an early shock for Australia when Fingleton is caught off the second ball of the match. Controversy simmered in the first two tests, but then erupted famously during the third in Adelaide when a short ball from Larwood slammed into the chest of the Australian captain Bill Woodfall, accompanied by a provocative, well bowled, Harold, 
from Jardine, deliberately within earshot of Bradman, who was the non-striker. It was at this point in the game that Woodfall was unfortunately struck on the heart by a ball from Larwood which got up. The Don was soon dismissed, caught at short leg for eight, more short balls followed and more blows to Australian bodies and egos were suffered, provoking a furious reaction from the 50,000 crowd who, at a drinks break, taunted Jardine with Don't give him a drink, let him die first. But perhaps the most inflammatory incident of the day was when Warner, the self-appointed team manager, visited the Australian dressing room after play to inquire of Woodfull's well-being. It was a touch disingenuous, highlighted by Woodfall's infamous response, Mr Warner, there are two teams out there on the field. One is playing cricket, the other is not. When Bert Oldfield, Australia's keeper, was felled by a bouncer from Larwood the following day, there was a near riot and the England players feared for their safety. Larwood is submitted to a good deal of barricade. But eventually, the match continued and England won it comfortably to take a 2-1 lead in the series. But the Australian cricket board fanned the flames of an already combustible series by accusing England's play of being unsportsmanlike, to which the MCC, who were then responsible for the England team, took great exception, and eventually governments became involved. England, of course, finished the series 3-1 victors, having effectively cut Bradman down to size, although he still averaged 53 over the four tests that he played in. So how did the cricketer cover these encounters? With Pelham Warner and his three hats, England team manager, cricket correspondent of the Morning Post and editor of the magazine, surely compromised. Here's Hugh Turberville again. Warner didn't address Bodyline in the magazine. In fact, he, he seemed to leave it to Frank Mitchell, AKA Second Slip, uh, the pseudonym, to condemn the tactics and Actually, after that, the cricketer's editorial stance just softened towards Bodyline and didn't, and didn't seem to disapprove of it that much at all, really. As an avid reader from a young age of back issues of The Cricketer, Bodyline had a huge impact on the well-known journalist and TV personality, Piers Morgan. I've developed quite a uh, massive interest in the Bodyline series because of Bradman and then Harold Larwood and Douglas Jardine. So anything anything about those guys, I remain to this day completely fascinated by. I thought that was, for all sorts of reasons, the greatest test series of them all and all the ramifications and all the fallout of body line and, um, you know, what happened to Harold Larwood and what happened to Jardine and what happened to Bradman. And it, it's, to me, in terms of cricket, to me, the Ashes has always been the absolute pinnacle. And that series although you could make great arguments for 05 and other series, actually, I think the, the Bodyline series was the greatest Ashes series and therefore, for me, the greatest series of all time. So anything about that period I was obsessed with. Warner was knighted for his services to cricket sometime afterwards. Interestingly, neither Larwood nor Jardine received anything and he remained editor of The Cricketer through to the late 1950s. But the magazine is indebted to Arthur Langford, a decent club player and long-time contributor, for putting it together through most of that time. Echoing the way many of us now work, the magazine's office was moved to Langford's house in Surbiton and his wife, Meg, ran the subscriptions. It kept publishing weekly even after the outbreak of World War II 
and the cancellation of several county seasons. There were evocative reports of two men, ACL Bennett and E.L. Roberts, braving the streets of London during the Blitz to deliver the handwritten pages of the cricketer to the typesetters in Bermondsey. Paper rationing finally forced the publication into becoming fortnightly. Once cricket resumed in the late 1940s, there were plenty of fascinating stories to cover. Dennis Compton and Bill Edrich's glorious run feast in 1947, Bradman's Invincibles blazing an unbeaten trail round England in 1948, the West Indies, including the famous three Ws, Walcott, Weeks and Worrell, winning their first Test match in England in 1950, and England finally regaining the ashes after 23 years with a first professional captain, Len Hutton, in 1953. Four runs to get. No, is it? Is it the Ashes? Yes, England have won the Ashes. And the race of all time. What a scene here. No policeman can hope to stop this. Great scenes. This development, the professional captain, was not one that best pleased E.W. Swanton, the writer and broadcaster known to everyone as Jim, who was becoming more and more influential at the cricketer especially when England toured the West Indies in 1954, as Stephen Chalk recalls. Swanton thought it were wrong to have a professional captaining an MCC team abroad, that there were wider diplomatic issues that needed dealing with, and it wasn't appropriate to have somebody like Hutton doing it. And of course, he toured the West Indies the previous winter when there'd been a lot of political and racial difficulties on the tour, and personal problems arising, friction between Islanders and the MCC team. And, and Swanton was, who had, like Warner, Swanton had a house in Barbados and a lot of feeling for the West Indies. And he felt that MCC had let the show down by sending out a team with a professional captain and not somebody of sufficient social stature to, to impress the the, the locals in the West Indies and the expats. And whenever they went to any kind of drinks functions at these embassies, this is at the time of uh, the West Indian independence movements bubbling up very strongly, they got to the point where they knew what all the white people were going to say to them and they couldn't bear it. And what they all said was, you've got to beat these people or our lives out here won't be worth living. And Hutton is put in as the captain in that environment. And Swanton, with his background, he's going to think, you know, this is not appropriate. We're the MCC. We've got to deal with more than the cricket field here. And he's blundering about Freddie Truman saying all sorts. And, uh, and we're not making a good impression here. <laughs> The cricketer was surviving just with the help of 200 readers who bought shares to keep it afloat. But Sir Pelham Warner had fallen into ill health and finally passed away a day before the distinction between amateurs and professionals, or gentlemen and players as they were officially referred to, was finally abolished in 1962. This opened the door to Jim Swanton becoming editorial director. A large and imposing figure who could recall seeing W.G. Grace bat and had first written for the magazine in the 1930s, he was in many ways the godfather of the cricketer, his span of influence lasting more than half a century. With a rich, treacly voice, Swanton was famous for his post-match summaries on the BBC. And he's caught at cover point. 
by Dexter. Harvey out. Caught Dexter. Bold Truman for 53. And his powers extended well beyond the realms of the Fourth Estate. Here's Stephen Chalk again. I would go to Swanton every time if I wanted an accurate description of what had happened in a day's play. I think he had an exceptional ability to read a game and report it accurately. I would never go to Swanton for a piece of colourful prose or a sideways insight on anything. He had enormous influence over selectors and everything. He, 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 and he didn't always know things as well as he thought he did. He, 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 he had a sort of papal authority in the game that um, I think the professionals found hard to take seriously. He didn't go too far away from the southeast of England. Um, it would be a rare sight even to see him at Northampton. I think he would love to have been president of MCC. Um, but it never came. Um, he was the greatest snob in cricket, I, th I think, without question. <laughs> but having said all that, he was an immensely professional man. Those summaries he did on the television at the end of a day's play, they were magisterial. But you know, the quality of being able to do that without a script at so, so soon after the close of play, it, it was a rare gift. Australia's captain... An early challenge to Swanton's editorial direction was presented by the famous D'Oliveira affair, when the superb cape-coloured batsman was justifiably called up for England's 1968 tour of South Africa. The South African Prime Minister, B.J. Vorster, a Nazi sympathiser, called the selection not the team of the MCC but the team of the anti-apartheid movement and refused to accept a squad with D'Oliveira in it. We will defend this country to the last man. So the tour was called off. Opinions at the cricketer were divided, as Hugh Turberville suggests. It seems some, some of the writers um, tried to rationalise the omission on cricketing grounds. Um, John Woodcock and Michael Melford, uh, Robin Marler, Christopher Martin Jenkins, E.W. Swanton and John Arlott very much voiced their disapproval of the decision to originally leave Oliveira out of the party. I suppose bearing in mind, he, he was recalled for the fifth test, so he hadn't been in the side that summer. Hmm. But, then to, but then to score 158 and still be left out does seem extraordinary, doesn't it? Into this political maelstrom stepped the former Somerset batsman Ben Brocklehurst, one of the last amateur county captains who had got into publishing after a previous life as a farmer. He persuaded his employer, Mercury House, to buy the cricketer, which was still battling on at a loss. But when the financial situation did not improve, Brocklehurst's boss gave him an ultimatum, as his widow, Belinda, recalls. The start of the magazine was so remarkable as far as we were concerned from the family point of view because he was a very successful publisher in London working for an American and Mercury House publications and he ran as he said 23 extremely boring magazines and when Jim came to him Jim Swanton and said that the cricketer was about to be shut down because I think it was Hutchinson's were running it and it was totally uh, you know not making any money so he persuaded his American boss to let him take it on. 
And I remember him saying, he came back and said, right, he's going to buy it, but he's said, on my head be it if it doesn't make a profit by the end of the year. Well, of course it didn't. He said, look, he'd been asked to make 40 people redundant. And he said, no, I can't. It was the beginning of the um, recession in end of 60s, early 70s. So, the, and this boss said he was going to close the cricketer down. So when Ben said, no, you can't, he said, fine, well, it make 41 redundant. So Ben actually came home as redundant with the cricketer. And so luckily I'd won a bottle of champagne for local village uh, fate. So I said, right, come on. So we opened the bottle of champagne and made a great big toast to our future and drank the whole bottle in no time at all and set to bite it. <laughs> it was a very good start to a very strange life. <laughs> and there we were at our home with the cricketer and Ben and I and one secretary and the children's playroom was taken over as an office. And one of our bedrooms became ben, Ben's office. And that's how we took it on. Not only did the Brocklehursts accommodate and revive the cricketer, they also expanded its influence by creating three amateur competitions. The Cricketer Cup for public school old boys teams, the Lord's Taverners Trophy for under 15s and the National Village Cup which has now reached a landmark of its own, its 50th year, and offers 22 lucky players the chance to play at Lords, the home of cricket, in the final, which this year is on September the 19th. We have Belinda Brocklehurst to thank for its success. Luckily, his imagination was so terrific and he got the competitions going, really to help village cricket very much to start with, because that was dying. So he, he wrote to all the AA pubs and garages that had a village with a population of 2,500 or less. And the whole lot, um, he wrote to the, all these people and said, please pass this letter on to the village captain if you have a village cricket side, offering them to join the village cricket competition. And he was talking on the radio about this and saying that he needed to have a sponsor. And luckily, Mike Henderson at Hague Whiskey happened to be listening in his car driving to London and got on the phone and said, right, we'll do it. And they came in, they were absolutely brilliant sponsors. And he persuaded Lords to let them have the final at Lords. And it, it took off. And actually I had to run it. I had to actually work out how to, I typed it actually. The first, the first few years I had to type the blessed thing out of the drawer and we'd worked out that you had to have, I think it was 32 pages with 32 clubs or the odd blank at the first stage to get a finalist. You wanted to end up with two finalists and it was kind of complicated. Recommended by the inimitable John Arlott, the Australian cricket writer and historian David Frith took over as editor of The Cricketer though the intimidating spectre of E.W. Swanton, the editorial director, still loomed large. There were two mammoth figures in the world of cricket media. And John rang Swanton and said, oh, I think I know the young chap who's uh, right for the job. So, but it, it was quite a daunting thing, going to the Oval and sitting with this very large man with the seal-skin voice, Zian Peebles described it. He, he was uh, a bit of a bully too. Everyone loved him, but he was a bit of a bully, Jim Swanton. 
Yeah, and, he was a uh, sort of a larger-than-life kind of character in a way, wasn't he? He was. He was, uh, you know, he'd been a prisoner of the Japanese during the war. He was uh, a bit of a bully himself. Um, but he enjoyed people kowtowing around him. And uh, I, I think most people were simply overwhelmed by him, uh, overawed by him. So it wasn't easy for me to slide into that editorial chair. But I soon found out that Jim was a pretty distant editorial director. I got very little communication from him. And that was by phone. We didn't have emails in those days. And um, once in a while, he'd express a view. He'd say, you've put Tony Lewis on the front cover, sweeping. I abhor the sweep. It's a very poor shot. I don't want to see it again. <laughs> I thought it was quite a decent picture, aesthetically. Um, we used to have editorial conferences in the back of a taxi on his way to the club. They were enthralling years. They really were. Yeah, I mean, look, really looking fun. back on those years, uh, David, it was quite interesting. They were sort of very much uh, changing times for the magazine because... Uh, well, firstly, the, the the introduction of things like the Cricketer Cup and the National Village Cup and so on, and also um, a woman's column as well by Rachel Hayho Flint. So some quite big changes in terms of content and, I suppose, trying to appeal to a wider audience. Oh, it had to be dragged out of the 1930s, that's for sure. And uh, Rachel was great fun. She She was good to work with lovely girl. I remember rushing to Lords in order to see the first ball ever bowled by a woman at Lords. And nearly went under a bus in my uh, panic to get to the ground in time and uh, to see her and the girls wandering around the long room in their skirts was, um, uh, today you wouldn't take exception to that because it was, uh, it's now a ladies club as well. Um, but in those days, it was revolutionary. The editor of The Cricketer was a high-profile position in the game, affording Frith rare intimacy with the leading players, even during a test match. But it was a painstaking process, putting the magazine, which was now published monthly, together. I was in uh, many a test match room and dramatic things happen. The first one that comes to mind is being in... Uh, the Lord's dressing room, and Gary Sobers came back in feeling very unwell. He'd been drinking quite heavily the night before, and he was a hundred and something not out, and he just needed a rest. He came in, and I happened to be in there with, with the West Indians. Then it was just so relaxed, so nice. And um, what was the process of producing the magazine on a kind of weekly basis? By today's standards, it was all very, very laborious. I'd have to type out every offering unless the uh, journalist happened to have a typewriter of his own, then I'd sub it before sending it off. The postal service was the thing. Everything went by post. They'd send me the proofs back. I'd read them, correct them, cut them out, paste them down, find the picture, show where the picture space was, send it back to the printer. Towards the end, as you got towards pub publication day or, or printing day, press day as he called it, he would send a messenger to ensure that nothing got held up in the post. And in the air, what's that? Is he out? He's out! 
Amos, Claude Jenner, Raoul Thompson, England, two for ten, and Thompson has two for four. The 70s was a lively decade in the cricket world. Jeff Thompson and Dennis Lilly exacted revenge for Bodyline in a bruising 1974-5 series in Australia. The first World Cup was staged in 1975, another competition actually initiated by Ben Brocklehurst. And there was the Kerry Packer revolution in 1977, ushering in floodlights, white balls and coloured clothing, prompting the origination of the term pyjama cricket. Frith took a firm but positive line on it. If hundreds of thousands of dollars are on offer to the players, then, so long as Test cricket remains unharmed, the authorities would be remiss in their duty if they did not build it into the game. The campaign to make cricket more lucrative and therefore more attractive to the young must continue. A young English star burst onto the scene about this time and his sole interest was Test cricket and duffing up the Aussies. And his bowling, first ball. Oh, what a return. Look at Botham. Absolutely delighted. His first wicket in Test match cricket, and what a scalp to get. Ian Terence Botham took five Australian wickets on his Test debut and tormented the old enemy for a decade with his fearless batting and waspish swing bowling. His finest moments were, of course, in the epic 1981 Ashes, beginning with that swashbuckling second-innings century at Headingley. The BBC cricket correspondent Christopher Martin Jenkins, known universally as CMJ, had recently become the new editor of The Cricketer and was part of the TV commentary team for that series. Lovely shot. Absolute thoroughbred straight. And they're looking for that, let alone chasing it. It's gone straight into the confectionery stall and out again. Botham's heroics coincided with the cricketer celebrating its diamond jubilee. And in the second half of this programme, we'll hear how a succession of excellent writers, editors, owners and intrepid staff helped it not only survive, but gain strength as it grew towards its century. Don't forget you can subscribe to The Cricketer at www.thecricketer.com. To its seventh decade of existence, the cricketer had plenty of meaty fare to get its inky fingers into. Botham's antics, on the field more than off it, the emergence of other fine players like David Gower and Graham Gooch, the phenomenal power and exuberance of the West Indies under Clive Lloyd, a first World Cup triumph for India, rebel tours to South Africa and one-day cricket bankrolling the domestic game in England. Christopher Martin Jenkins was at the helm and recruited various current county players to write columns that hopefully would entice and entertain the readers. I was one. Vic Marks, the Somerset and England all-rounder and familiar voice on Test Match Special, was another. I got paid for the very first time in my life for writing something by the cricketer. I'd just probably been selected to go on my first England tour. And CMJ got in touch 
to ask me whether I would like to be their sort of man in the dressing room. Um, I gather I wasn't the first choice. Because <laughs> um, I think he asked Tav, <laughs> who was also on his first tour. And Tav wasn't that interested. I'm sure you'd send a monthly piece, which you'd have to give to the manager, obviously, to read, to check it out. That means, you know, there's nothing untoward in there. Uh, and I ended up doing that for three tours, the three tours I went on. And then uh, somewhere around then, CMJ then asked me if I'd like to join the board, <laughs> which sounded a very grand thing. Um, and it was quite a grand thing, and I, I've written about it in the magazine, that you suddenly realised you turned up for these board meetings once a year, uh, possibly in a London club, possibly down in Kent somewhere, I don't know. And um, you'd look around, and there was Swanton, and there was there could be Cowdery, Colin Cowdery, Brian Johnson might be there, John Woodcock. They weren't very interested in the nuts and bolts of the magazine, but they they loved to come and chat about cricket. And of course, they were talking about pre-war cricket. And then you realise that half of them had watched quite a lot of pre-war cricket, and they'd seen all these great players that we've only read about. So that was, a, you know, an early association with the cricketer for me. Uh, and CMJ, by then, was was the editor, although Swanton still probably felt he had a significant hand on the tiller as well. I, I mean, your diaries from the tours, how revealing could you be? It's a balancing act, isn't it? Sometimes when you're in that role, you're still playing, you're still part of the team. Um, but you don't want to be deadly boring. <laughs> And you want to have something, if not spicy, certainly quirky, something that only you would know. Um, so I guess it was a balancing act. And perhaps unlike you, I would I would go on the safer side. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but it, it was good enough to uh, it was good enough to keep going. And actually, the the couple things I did that I really enjoyed doing, and I also enjoyed. Um, reading other people's stuff is that in those days the cricketer had a diary of the season and I remember I did a couple seasons of that and I think Pete Roebuck did one I remember Alan Gibson he gave he, there was a book about it actually and Alan Gibson did it several years brilliant I used to think Alan Gibson was the most phenomenal writer um, and that was an interesting little writing project whilst you're still playing you did a, a weekly diary throughout the season for the cricketer but it was it was quite a chunk of work by the end of the season uh, and to have the opportunity to do that after the likes of as I say Alan Gibson had done it I think Pete Roebuck had done it I'm, I'm sure Tony Lewis or that type of person had done it was an interesting sort of project for someone who was you know, mildly interested in doing some writing, but I was still obviously, a, you know, a professional. Boycott, 96 not out. He bowls to him. It's a half volley, drives it down the ground, and there it is. He's done it. He lifts both hands in the air. Jeff Boycott has got his 100th hundred, and the crowd cannot resist coming on to the pitch. CMJ, you know, what sort of character was he? And what, what, what was he like? Well, he was wonderful. I mean, it's amazing, as I was saying in the piece I've written, we still talk about him because you couldn't forget him. You couldn't ignore it. I mean, I loved Mike Selvey's remark that he, when he died of the fact that cricket had lost his greatest friend. Uh, he loved the game with a passion. Uh, 
but he was, you know, he was obviously, we all know that he was hilarious in many ways, uh, manic in many ways. I always used to feel that Christopher was in control of his life far better in front of a microphone than at any other point during the day because he was the most consummate, brilliant broadcaster, wonderful voice, beautiful descriptions of what was going on. And, and he seemed to be in control at the microphone. But it's quite hard to establish that he was in control at any other place <laughs> during the day. He'd be turning up about 20 seconds before he was supposed to start. And we all know the various, you know, CMJ stories. I mean, I'm, you know, walking to Cardiff, first day, first ever test match at Cardiff. And we were staying within walking distance so we could walk down that sort of high street down towards the ground. Uh, and coming up on our left is Marks and Spencers. And CMJ's going to be on time too. We, you know, we leave in good time and he's with us. And he said, I'm just going to pop into Marks and Spencers. I said, oh, all right, what for? I'm going to buy a laptop. <laughs> My laptop in Marks and Spencers. And sure enough, he turned up quite a long time afterwards with a laptop. He always used to have arguments with laptops, as you know. Um, I mean, he, he could not waste a moment and he, he was thoroughly unpredictable, but he loved the game. He was great fun to be alongside, whether it's in a country box or on a golf course. I played a lot of golf with him. He was a hilarious golfer without meaning to be. Early on in his time, and Swanton was still floating around and we people had just started playing cluttered clothing and he had a, he had a, a front page or, you know, a cover which had someone uh, in coloured clothing sweeping. Now, Swanton hated the sweep shot, so this combination of someone in bright pyjamas <laughs> sweeping, probably a ball that was on the stumps, <laughs> had Swanton in some sort of... This is appalling, <laughs> but, but CMJ stuck with it. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I think he... he the, I mean, what I always used to think about CMJ, the writer, and this is a virtue, is that because we knew his voice, you read him and you felt you were listening to CMJ. So, and that gave him more sort of authority. You could hear his voice in his writing. Uh, and then a lot of writers haven't got that uh, benefit because they're not so, their voice isn't so well known. But you could, you know, you could read a piece of CMJ, whether it was in The Cricketer or subsequently when he was writing in the papers. And you needn't see the byline. You would recognise it as CMJ, just the, you know because it was faithful to how he was. He wrote like he sounded. In Australia, only two years ago, Australia are all out for 348 on a golden evening at the Oval. The 1980s were, in many ways, cricket's second golden age. There were so many wonderful matches to appreciate and brilliant players to applaud and the cricketer enjoyed a golden decade too, with subscriptions topping 40,000 and the various competitions thriving. The Brocklehurst's drive and bonhomie added spirit and fun to the whole enterprise, encapsulated by the occasional get-togethers of the cricketer board, of which the former Hampshire captain, now writer and broadcaster Mark Nicholas, was an enthusiastic member. The meetings were very funny, actually. I joined the board at the invitation of Ben Brocklehurst, 
who was a huge man, as um, were his family, all the family were big human beings, or are, the sons stood around, but uh, an enormous fun and very generous. And they were as their parties, board meetings, lunches, and Christmas presents were every bit as big as the family. I mean, they were amazing people. And Ben really believed in the magazine. He, he, he people, you know, well, yes, it was a business venture for him, but he adored the magazine. He played cricket for Somerset himself. He, he loved the Cricketer Cup, a, a competition started by the magazine for um, private school old boys. And he, he, he set up a magazine driven, yes, certainly by, you know, good features and photographs and good records of matches. He gave space to club cricket and schools cricket, but but he did it really wanting to entertain the people who read it. He definitely saw the magazine as entertainment and Jim saw it more as record. But I was very excited to join the board of, you know, the Cricketer magazine, having read it so much as a boy. And you'd have your, you know, you'd meet at nine o'clock for the board meeting and it finished. It was a long board meeting. You break for coffee and biscuits and but it, at 12 o'clock, you were served cold champagne um, and smoked salmon nibbles on brown bread. And then at one o'clock, you finished the board meeting, come what may. I mean, you might have been on, you know, a serious issue like hiking the price or something. <laughs> but it didn't matter. You broke for lunch and you had a proper lunch. And I mean, you know, proper lunch. A lot of good wine, ate a lot of food, pretty good food. It was a trencherman's lunch, but it was good food. And then you went on to port, you carried on the conversation, and then you reconvened if there were further things to discuss. But of course, after a lunch like that at three o'clock, you, all you want to do is nod off. Um, so they were great days. The, the cricketer board meeting day was a great one. I, I think there were two a year. Then your Christmas present always arrived. He sent every board member a side of smoked salmon and half a case of champagne, decent champagne. And, and that was a great treat. Um, but he never stinted on his magazine. You know, if it meant spending money, his own money, to make it a, a more fabulous experience for, his, for the members of his board, who he asked personally to come along and join in the fun, he, he would do so. At the time, the magazine's editorials were filed under the pseudonym Felix, the job of writing it shared by CMJ and Jim Swanton. Both men had a deep knowledge and appreciation of the game, and Swanton's 80-plus years and rich life experience gave his opinions huge gravitas. As a board member of the cricketer and Daily Telegraph colleague, Mark Nicholas knew him well. Jim was extraordinary. People forget how he, probably people don't know, but he, when he was a prisoner of war, of war in, in, he was captured in Singapore and was a prisoner of war in Burma and, and he got polio and he got quite disfigured and, and very thin. His father didn't recognize him at the station when he picked him up, literally walked straight past him. Jim didn't talk about it much, but that's a true story. I think he, um, you know, the, the, the great, story about the thumbnailed copy of the 1939 almanac, an almanac that he took with him and, and smuggled it in, into the camp somehow and, and therefore knew every word of it by the end. Again, that's true. 
Um, and, you know, he carried on in life. Never, he never once in any facet of his life did he ever mention the inconvenience or the discomfort of that polio and of that suffering in that war camp. He, he lived in pain. Um, he'd never, ever mentioned it. He could come up with some classic stuff. The, 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 um, I, was, I played a morning four ball with Downton Cowdery and Nick Kemp. And the four of us were having lunch at Royal St George's. And it came up about, um, you know, who is the next best batsman after Bradman? And we were just knocking it around as a bit of a laugh. And I said, I should think a combination of Barry and Viv Richards, the best of each, would do that easily. And Nick Kemp, being mischievous, had walked over to Jim, who was sitting at another table with his wife, Anne, and a couple of other friends who played a full foursome in the morning, and told him that I'd said that Bradman would be matched by the best of the two Richards. <laughs> so, we were eating a, you know, whatever we were eating, treacle tart or something for pudding. And, and um, I got this firm sort of wrap on my shoulder and I looked up and Jim was a very big man, Jim, huge, man, tall man. And I, ah, Jim, I said, hi, Jim. He said, I hear you think that the two Richards would make the best after Bradman. I saw Hammond, dear boy, and I can assure you, he knocks the two Richards into a cocked hat. <laughs> Brilliant. So the cricketer was dominated by these two considerable cricketing figures, CMJ and EWS, neither of whom, incidentally, had ever played county cricket, although Swanton did play three matches for Middlesex against the universities before the war. But both men were so busy and in demand that the magazine was actually run for more than 20 years by Mandy Ripley, whose previous jobs had included referee's assistant at the All England Tennis Championships and nanny to Jimmy Connor's children. She had only a sketchy understanding of cricket, so under CMJ's editorship, she had to learn fast. My first ever letter that I wrote, he was dashing off somewhere, as he always did, and he'd scrawled this letter to Don Bradman and signed a piece of headed paper and said, just type that around that signature, would you, and get it off. And he had mentioned the name Clary Grimmett. Well, I didn't know anything about the history of the game, so I read the word as Charlie and wrote this letter with his signature on the end, Charlie Grimmett. And like, as quick as the post office would carry it, the reply came back from Bradman saying, I would have thought you'd have known better. And uh, he was terribly embarrassed, terribly embarrassed. I've got this new secretary, I've got this new secretary. Um, and uh, back went the reply to Don Bradman, cap in hand almost, you know. And um, so things like that. He was funny. Um, but he once that happened, he said to me, you need to learn your cricket. Here's a book. And he gave me a book, um, which I read from cover to cover and fell in love with the history of the game. And, and so I, I've got a lot to thank him for, really. He would breeze into the office um, uh, with his laptop and about a dozen different newspapers um, under his arm and put them down on the desk and, and almost immediately opened the old-fashioned type, typewriter with a lid, as it was in those days, and just begin typing. He, he Morning, morning, um, and just begin, just start work straight away. He just had that knack of walking in and just being able to begin. And um, 
he he actually came in one day and said, hmm, I made a bit of a mistake the other morning. Uh, oh, what's that, Christopher? Well, I got dressed in the dark, and uh, I'm afraid, and he stuck he stuck his feet out, and he got one black and one brown shoe on. <laughs> didn't want to wake his wife you know so. T- tell us about um the the location of the magazine at the time and sort of what the daily routine was like uh well when i first started we were in red hill in uh, an office loaned to us by a company called surrey fine art press who were the printers at the end of the road and um they used to um bring daily galleys from 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 the printers over in Reading and down came our galleys uh, for us to proofread and, and correct and then send back on the truck the next day and it was a tiny room I mean literally uh, the size of a bedroom really in which there were four desks I think four desks a big layout table because it was all paper and scissors then um, and we only had a fax machine no modern communication so when the galleys eventually started to come by facts, they weren't really good for proofreading. You'd miss an awful lot. But it was all we had to get the thing done at the time. Jim Swanton, who was still involved then, uh, yes. did you have much contact with him and how? what was he like? Yes, I did. I did. Eventually he, he ended up doing the book review column and he would ring me and say, Amanda... Could you meet me at Canterbury on such and such a day and bring your latest books? So I would trawl over to um, the county ground, wherever he happened to be, um, with a pile of books in the boot of my car, um, hand them to him one by one. And the first thing he did was look in the index. And if his name wasn't in there, he'd say, you could do that one. <laughs> <laughs> At the beginning of the 1990s, there were some team changes at the Cricketer. CMJ stood down as editor, and Jim Swanton, who was in his mid-80s, also finally relinquished his role. The Brocklehursts were keen on a famous name as the new figurehead, and piloted in the Yorkshire and England all-rounder Richard Hutton, son of Selen, as editorial director. He was certainly enthusiastic about the job, but the fortunes of the England cricket team declined markedly. Century, ...and by the close of play, another 34 runs have been added to take the Australian score along to 580 for six, a massive total. And that, and the expansion of newspapers' sports coverage, had a significant effect on the prosperity of the magazine. Well, I think the biggest single factor of my time that affected us, or the success of the publication, was the appalling performance of the England team. And um, during my seven years, I don't think we won a single series. And frequently, England were beaten in 5-0 of a five-match series. And in many instances, they were incapable of extending a five-day match much beyond three days. it was really pathetic to um, have to attend, <laughs> but it did shorten my weekend quite a lot. Um, <laughs> because of that, the, the progress was always uphill because of the fact that the England team were doing so badly. The other feature of that time was that um, there was a very big shake-up in the publication world generally following 
the control of the print unions, which allowed a lot of national newspapers to extend their coverage way beyond just normal news gathering. To some extent, one felt that we, we were losing our specialization as a cricketing publication because all the newspapers were now running to three or four pages on cricket, not necessarily uh, match reports, mm. but also uh, all sorts of features on all aspects of the game. Peter Pershard was the day-to-day -day editor, a role he had effectively been performing for several years, and putting the magazine to bed was still a torturous process. But he recruited some punchy columnists. It was archaic. You know, we'd take three days to go from getting a piece of copy to getting a galley, and then cutting up galleys on a board, pasting them down, sizing up pictures either on a, um, a light box or if it was a tranny up with a projector onto the wall and then doing tracings. <laughs> it was crazy. Anyway, you get a galley, you'd send off the thing and you'd get a page proof. So it would take, you know, something like five days or something to get a page from beginning to end. I was doing sheets all down the corridor, sort of laying them out, trying to make everything fit together. And then I also just wanted to liven up the inside a little bit. It was great on history. It was great on top writing, which, you know, one never wanted to interfere with and wanted to enhance, if anything, but I, I, it needed a little, a little more colourful writing, perhaps in parts and few, a bit more diversity, perhaps. Mm. So I like to think, you know, introduce things like the Cricketer of the Month as a poster for kids to cut out and put on their wall. We started doing things like the fixtures lift as a big colour-coded thing, which helped. Richard, when he came in, I mean, one of Richard's great ideas was Bouncer, which um, took a, a, a good swipe at the, at the cricket media in a way. Well, not a swipe, but it was a fairly forensic sort of have a go at uh, some of the things that were going on. Who wrote Bouncer? Ah, well, you see, that was the great thing. We kept that a secret, and it's still a secret as far as I know today. I mean, I can share this with you probably now because it doesn't really matter, but it was Jack Bailey. Right, interesting. Who obviously knew the whole business from, from both sides. I mean, obviously, his fallout with the TCCB when he was at MCC. Um, but no, it was, it was a wonderful column, actually. It... it um, obviously uh, stuck the knife in in a few places. And, and of course, all the cricket writers loved it. Um, and there was a constant guessing game. And I think a lot of people thought it was Richard, but it clearly wasn't. Around this time, the cricketer had a rather nomadic existence, moving from tiny premises in Redhill to a factory in Kent where the Sabutio football game was manufactured and then to a vineyard in Lamberhurst. There was further upheaval when the magazine converted from the old system of cut and paste to desktop publishing. It was a long overdue transformation, but various factors conspired against the magazine that was now run by the Brocklehurst's son, Tim. When I joined in 92, um, we began, it, it was at the time uh, when the circulation began to, to fall. The bookstall circulation in particular began to fall. 
it wasn't long after that that the lottery was started. And I remember our distribution manager, Harry Constantine, at our regular meetings that we'd have about uh, distribution and circulation. And endlessly, the excuse for a reduced circulation month on month was because people were buying lottery tickets instead. Uh, and this had never been a phenomenon before. Um, and But he, you know, it, it provided some reason as to why it was difficult to justify selling so many uh, magazines on the bookstalls. But aside from that, there was more competition, I suppose, on the bookstalls. The internet was still very young, so that wasn't to blame necessarily. But um, it, I remember it, it, it focused my mind on wanting to increase subscriptions uh, and that I thought there was an opportunity to shore up a, a more future-proofed magazine if we had a strong subscription base. I remember too in that period that you know the internet, young though it was, by 1997 that we actually launched a, a um, Crick Shop, which was an online e-commerce shop selling our cricket merchandise, and it went well. It was uh, it provided a further stream of of custom, maybe like um, beyond the pages of the magazine, you know, to this cricket audience um, that Crick Info had, uh, and that was a fascinating time. While we were watching the circulation of the magazine fall on the bookstores, uh, I was watching internet use grow and grow. And, um, you know, I, it, the writing was on the wall as far as I was concerned that, that we were all going to go digital. Um, but of course, there was that, always that argument about how valuable it was to hold a piece of paper and to hold the magazine in your hands. And we still haven't solved that entirely yet. There she goes, and he's gonna go. He's gone! Can you believe it? Can you believe it? They could not have painted the picture clearer for the England captain, and he's fallen for it. So the cricketer emerged into the new millennium battling for its future, rather like the England cricket team under Nasser Hussain. The Brocklehursts, after three decades of ownership, finally sold out to Wisden Cricket Monthly, owned by the Getty family, and two magazines briefly became one under a new editor, John Stern, just as a new format of the game, T20, was introduced. Hugh Turberville remembers the merger well, for very personal reasons. The Cricketer was bought by Wisden, owned by Sir Paul Getty, John Paul Getty, and uh, the Brocklehurst family made way, although they were part of the selection panel interviewing the new editor, because I went for that job, um, and John Stern got it. And he was in charge of what was called the Wisden Cricketer, merging with Wisden Cricket Monthly. And he was there from 2003 to 2011. And it was a very good magazine, I thought. I read it in earnest in that period. He was a very good editor, I thought. Uh, and his challenge was to sort of take the best bits from the Cricketer and the best bits from the other magazine and fuse them together. And I thought he did pretty well. He's got it away. That's well played. Listen to the roar goes up. That's Michael Vaughan's 15th century, and he's fourth against Australia. By 2004, England had rebuilt under Michael Vaughan, and with Channel 4 injecting imagination and marketing spend into their cricket coverage, magazine sales were rejuvenated. They peaked again at 40,000, around the climax of the epic 2005 Ashes, 
which had the nation enthralled and sparked a new wave of wannabe Flintoffs playing cricket in parks and on commons. Flintoff has changed the whole feeling of the occasion. Beauty! Yes! Magnificent cricket from this man. He set the place alight. has done a despair on the faces of the batsmen and joy for every England player on the field. But the spectacular launch of the Indian Premier League in 2008, with its Yes Bank maximums and SEAT strategic timeouts, left English cricket playing catch-up, especially as it could now only be found behind a Sky Sports painting. Sky also purchased the magazine, still called The Wisdom Cricketer, but sales stalled. The pick-me-up was the intervention of the former Leicestershire chairman Neil Davidson and Lord Marland of Oddstock, who bought the magazine in 2010 and returned it to its original title. Davidson explains their rationale. About 18 months before we acquired The Cricketer, we'd started a website, testmatchextra.com, which was really the brainchild of... Lord Jonathan Mar Marland and Jonathan Agnew and I got involved and a number of the journalists involved got involved including yourself Christopher Mark and Jenkins Vic Marks and others and that was that was doing okay then we had the opportunity to buy the cricketer magazine what was the wisdom cricketer at that stage from Sky we didn't even know they they owned it uh, we as a bunch of cricket lovers thought this was a wonderful idea to acquire the magazine alongside our website. It gave us the opportunity to rebrand the website itself, thecricketer.com, and to acquire a uh, an iconic brand which we all loved and read since childhood. We thought there was a commercial opportunity when we formed the, the website, um, and this built on, on that, uh, that acquiring the magazine and the, particularly the cricketer brand we saw as a way of actually accelerating the uh, the progress of uh, of the newly formed organisation. I mean, it's had its ups and downs in the meantime, but the magazine has been a constant factor and and actually is doing doing very well now. We're very privileged, we feel, to be the owners of it and have been for the last ten years. So we've ten percent of its existence has been in our hands, and I think. Uh, we've tried different things at different times, but I think we've settled on a formula which serves the game very well indeed. The old title has taken time to find its new feet, but the revamping of the Cricketer website has given the business a new lease of life, with online editor Sam Morshead spearheading a new and award-winning digital presence. Crick Info and Crick Buzz are such major players in the industry and, and they dominate the landscape completely um, and quite rightly so. They've been around for a long time. They're well established um, on the subcontinent. Uh, and over here, I think we've, we've kind of relied on the on newspapers um, for day-to-day -day, uh, reporting of the game. Um, and that hasn't really spread out as much as you've seen in other sports. Uh, so obviously with, with some other sports, there's a, a lot of websites around. Obviously football is the, is the main example of this. But cricket has, it has some and it has a limited number. 
customer. But I think that certainly from a from a UK perspective, there's always been scope to go deep, to sort of do the job that wisdom do um, on a on an annual basis in the almanac, um, and do it on a more regular basis, particularly with the weight of um, of identity and and the and the prestige and heritage brand that the cricketer is. That you know that 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 brought into the twenty first century with a with a prize digital offering that. That gives our readers um, opportunities to go in all different directions, and of course uses itself as a marketing arm for the for the Cricketer magazine as well. But I think that definitely definitely was an opportunity there, and that opportunity is still there. We're nowhere near getting to where we where I think we can get with uh, with the digital side of the business. Um, you know, we have over a, a million uniques from the from the UK that come to our site in the last twelve months, and and we're still relatively small. So, I think that that there's still plenty of potential to to go and spread the word and. Um, and hopefully compete with with those big national newspapers and BBC and, and places like that to to be the first port of call for for county fans and fans of the recreational game or players of the recreational game. And there's a big appetite for our domestic cricket journalism coverage, and we've won the ECB's award for the outstanding online place for coverage of the domestic game for the last two years. Um, and and that's a great starting point. But you know we've also uh, ventured out into the world of the franchise cricket and. Um, and that's a big part of what we do, the, the, the IPL, the PSL, the CPL, Big Bash, and, and 100 will, will obviously go in line with this as well. And, and just trying to provide a service of information along these tournament lines that people want to go to for quick and quick and easy info. And that's then topped up and complemented by an excellent feature writing team um, producing regular quality deep reads into, into the game that we all love. The print magazine is still the core of the business, and through listening to the readership, a recommendation of new managing director Guy Evans-Tipping, our small team has been able to grow its subscriber base, a rare achievement in a world of free online content. Both I and managing editor Hugh Turberville have focused on top-class contributors and comprehensive county coverage, filling the vacuum left by national newspapers. We went back to basics, didn't we? Uh very much giving the readers what they wanted. Guy introduced a survey annually that for the readers to fill in and we we wanted to go back to give the readers what they craved really, which was uh, a lot of a lot of county cricket if I'm honest. I mean John Stern found that early on that you know you couldn't give the readers enough county cricket, but we certainly wanted to give them more of that that came through in the surveys they wanted more county cricket. We were still going to cover the game at all levels, schools, club. Uh, international, very much our focus, both you and I, was on um, getting the best writers, Simon, wasn't it? We had, yeah, I mean, you were, we both worked together at the Telegraph and you'd been at the Times and I'd been at the Express as well. So we knew who who did what in Fleet Street, didn't we? And we got some good writers like uh, Simon Barnes and Shield Berry and Paul Gideon, Hayward's done, done some Hay bits. Well. Yeah, Gideon Hay, we got him to a regular thing. He didn't want to do a sort of a column uh, every month where he sort of, um, sounded off about things, but he's he's done a fantastic thing called the window where he looks at old photos. So that's lovely, isn't it? I mean, another thing that we, we in in a many ways, it's in this sort of digital age, you'd think is a slight anachronism is the test match reports, but they remain really popular with our readers. You know, um, two page reports on each test uh, written by various writers, and and sometimes you know people will be reading those a month after the test takes place, and people can sort of sit back and have a glass of wine and, and reflect on a match rather than banging out copy, you know, that night or the next morning. They've probably got a month to sort of let it just simmer and 
and and and reflect languidly on on the match. So I think that they they're they're really popular. Gattol's going to push for two. They've got to go. It's got to throw. It's got to go to the keeper's end. He's got it. England have won the World Cup by the barest of margins. By the barest of all margins. Absolute ecstasy for England. Agony. Agony for New Zealand. England's brilliant 2019 World Cup triumph at Lords, on the back of a similar achievement by their female counterparts two years earlier, gave the cricketer a timely boost just as it approached its centenary, and 12 different covers were produced, one featuring each player and one the entire team, to commemorate the World Cup win. And the cricketer staff turned the Covid interruption of the 2020 season to advantage by producing a number of themed issues on great cricket books, beautiful grounds, defining innovations, and a special spread on the Black Lives Matter initiative centred round the thoughts and experiences of the UK's only black cricket correspondent, the Daily Mirror's Dean Wilson. The cricketer sort, sort of grasped the nettle, you know, pretty firmly and swiftly. One of the great things as well is, is about awareness and education. You know, a lot of people on this issue have referenced back to, you know, Michael Holding and, and Ebony Rainford Brent's um, you know, kind of um, inspiring segment on on TV. Um, but, you know, let's not forget that the absolute central tenet of what uh, Mikey was saying was about education, about evolving and improving and changing. And you do that through education. You do it through um, opening people's eyes um, and hearts to uh, more knowledge, and more experience, and and I think through that, um, that that is how we will um, get to a place of greater tolerance and, and greater understanding, which I think is a you know a good thing. Um, and I think that's you know not that that goes for not just for for Black Lives Matter, but that goes for you know gender equality, um, you know diversity across you know a whole range of subjects and and you know issues like disability cricket, women's cricket, um, youth cricket club cricket you know all things that the cricketer you know does cover you know they're all they're all really important in the first part of the 21st century the cricketer has evolved and expanded to find its position in the rapidly changing media landscape and for our loyal columnist and lead Sky commentator Nasser Hussain the publication is as relevant now as it was when he was just starting out in the game Growing up, you always wanted to be on the front cover, really. I mean, it's not quite Sports Illustrated, but it's still the Cricketer magazine, and you were desperate to be in it, or eventually one day it would be nice to be on the front cover of the Cricketer, Cricketer magazine. Or even in the middle, didn't they used to have like a shot of the month, something? You wanted to feature in a good way uh, in the Cricketer um, magazine, you know, not in a bad way, five ducks in a row or whatever. So I think my first appearance was, was when I was about 16 or 17 and everyone was heralding me. I had that big bouffonny curly hair um, and there was a terrible picture of me in it and uh, everyone was going on about my leg spin and only I knew that at that stage I was getting the yips of my leg spin uh, and was starting to work on my batting. So it was a sort of double-edged sword to, to end up in the cricketer, but um, I took it anyway. It seems that the cricketer have stayed ahead of the curve and stayed up with the modern ways of accessing information. So it's a good sign because if it hasn't done that, there's a lot of 
good examples of things that have just been left behind because they haven't need, felt the need to improve. So there are similarities between that and being a cricketer, not necessarily getting a hundred, but constantly throughout your career, you're trying to get better and, and improve. So um, for the cricketer to still be around and going well and going strongly after such a long period is a is a good sign, but also a sign that it needs to keep looking and keep keep making sure it, it you know gets into the challenges that lie ahead. So, thanks to the devotion and imagination of all its owners, editors, staff and contributors, the Cricketer magazine has been able to register its century, perhaps the finest hundred the game has seen, certainly the most demanding. It's a triumph of perseverance and passion and never taking your eye off the ball. But a publication is nothing without its readers, and on behalf of all who've written or worked for The Cricketer, I'd like to thank everyone who's ever picked up and browsed through a copy and hope you'll join us as we embark ball by ball, keystroke by keystroke on our next century. For £19.21 you can get a six-month subscription to the magazine which includes our commemorative April 2021 issue and summer wall chart. Go to www.thecricketer.com slash centenary to sign up. Thank you also to all the contributors on this special programme and especially to the composer and ardent cricket fan Andrew Skeet for the music. And thank you to you for listening and hope you're inspired by the cricketer's tale of resilience and reinvention and the constancy it gives you in a rapidly changing world. That's a splendid hundred. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty. And luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.